Good morning. Our passage this morning is from Luke 13, verse 22 to 30. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and plead, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, But we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you are from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. Welcome to Regeneration. Happy New Year. The, the real New Year is happening later. You know. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? That's when my kids get really happy because they get those red envelopes. Oh, here's a secret for you guys that have kids. Your kids just have to walk around Chinatown saying, Gong Hei Fat Choi. That means happy, or that means like, that's not really Happy New Year, but it's like a way to bring in the New Year, and they'll get a red envelope with money in it. Do it. <laughs> and tithe. No, okay. Um, let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you so much for your word. Uh, we, we cherish it, we love it, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal it to us, the things that you want us to hear. The text this morning, Jesus, can come across harsh, but you love us that much to tell us the truth, and I pray, Lord, that we are receptive to it, that our minds are open to what you have to say to us, that our hearts are softened to what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. If you're new here, this is what we do at our church is we just kind of go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, and this is where we're at. Um, And if you're new here, we've been here for like over a year and a half. So another year and a half, we'll be here in Luke, I think, I hope. Before we start our text this morning, let's quickly remind ourselves of Jesus' purpose and his mission. And to do that, let's first turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 43, where Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And then Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, if you aren't familiar with this, if Christianity is something new to you, having your face towards Jerusalem, Jesus is talking about the cross. And we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go along. But just to give you a sense of what his mission and his purpose was. Jesus was doing exactly as God the Father purposed him to do. And this is what we find Jesus continuing to do in our text this morning in Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. 
preaching the good news of the kingdom to the other towns and setting his face to go to Jerusalem. As verse 22 says, here it is. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. He is on mission. And as Jesus was preaching and teaching, the crowds grew. They, they grew really large. Luke records for us in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. So you can imagine the excitement here and the, the, the crowd building up and, and everyone listening to him. And all those people, if you can just imagine, all those people, so many people, so many diverse needs. A ton of needs. Some of them sick, some of them crippled, some hungry, poor, depressed, oppressed. You think about it, they were there. Some people who didn't even have a need that were there. Right? They were there because of all the excitement and, and the people wanting to be around Jesus and what's going on here? What's, what's this guy doing? People who wanted just to hear Jesus. People who wanted to see what He did. And I don't think that's that different from our church. Right? Some of you here because you have legitimate needs that need to be met. You might have financial troubles. And you would like prayer about that or you would like some guidance about that or you just want to talk to somebody about that. Maybe... You have a medical diagnosis that isn't so good. And you want to bring it before God and you want the church to intercede on your behalf and you want to talk about those things. But maybe you're just like those other people in that crowd that Jesus had around Him, that they were just curious. You kind of just want to check things out. You've heard some cool things that are happening here at Regeneration, so you want to check it out. You want to see this for yourself. Or you've heard about Jesus and you want to see what church is all about and maybe you even have a question to ask to Jesus or about Jesus as He's directly in front of you. And that's what I think is kind of happening here in verse 23. Someone in the crowd had a question for Jesus. He's he or she, doesn't say, is observing all this stuff and hearing all this stuff and taking all this stuff in and now has an opportunity to ask a question. In verse 23 it says, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them. Now I find it really interesting that it's an individual asking a question, but Jesus addressed those around him. You notice that? You notice what it says. Someone said to him, and he said to them, what was that question? Lord, will those who are saved be few? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? If you had Jesus in front of you, and you had him as your audience, and you can ask him any question you wanted to ask him, what would you ask? And I think this question is, this one's all right. This is a good question. And I think there, there was something more behind this question, though. I think it's more than just a simple question. I think this person is asking the question because he's or she has observed a few things. And so they've had this question brewing in their mind for some time before asking Jesus this question in verse 23. I think this person was around Jesus when Jesus healed that woman in the synagogue. Right? Remember that? Jesus healed a woman in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And you recall that she was bent over for 18 years. She couldn't straighten herself up. You just, it's in verse 11. Same chapter. I think this person might have been there. If anything, at least heard about this story. Maybe he or she didn't see it, but at least heard about Jesus healing this woman and then heard Jesus teaching about what the kingdom is like afterward. Now what is the kingdom of God like? 
It's in verses 19 and 21 of this chapter. Verse 19, It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Verse 21, It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. In thinking of, about what the kingdom of God is like, Maybe this person with this question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Maybe they overlooked that the small mustard seed grew so large that birds made nests in its branches and and also overlooked that a little leaven influences a whole lot of flour. And instead of looking at how unstoppable the kingdom of God was, looked at how small a mustard seed and leaven were. And I can see how things can be overlooked and misunderstood. Because let's look at what's happened so far. If this person has been here this whole account, there's one woman healed. One. That was healed in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now what's so big about that? What's the big deal about that? Lord, will those who are saved be few? Because I just noticed that in that synagogue, there was only one woman healed. So it's a legitimate question. But I think it's a question based on speculation. right? The person asking this question was using incomplete information and was forming conclusions that weren't based on fact. So how did Jesus answer this question? And he answers it in true Jesus fashion. He doesn't answer the way we think he'd answer. Isn't that frustrating about Jesus? You ask him a question, he's like, Hey, guys. I was like, But I asked you, and you're answering all these people. Now, before we get into his answer here, let's look back to Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Because something similar is happening here. Because someone in the crowd asked Jesus a question. And they asked this, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. See, both of these people had Jesus as an audience. They asked him a question, except the brother in Luke chapter 12 was asking Jesus a legal question. But how did Jesus answer him? He answered the guy by answering them. And he was teaching about greed, right? First, he tells this brother in verse 14 of chapter 12, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then in verse 15, he addressed them. Now, the brother was expecting Jesus to answer in a certain way. But Jesus didn't give him what he expected. Jesus answered his question, but he addressed greed to them. And he knew those around him needed this instruction on how to deal with greed. Jesus kept things on track. His face is towards Jerusalem. He doesn't have all the time in the world. He needs to do the things that he's on mission to do. And so he uses these kind of off-the-cuff questions as opportunities to kind of equip his disciples, to teach his disciples, not just focus on that one person. See, we don't always get the answers we want. But Jesus, as a good shepherd, always gives us the answers that we need. Just like in our text this morning. Lord, will those who are saved be few? And it's not the answer that the individual wanted necessarily, but his answer is what we all need. Someone said to him, and he said to them, us. Jesus took this speculative question about the nature of salvation and he redirects it into a very challenging lesson that requires us to take a personal assessment, to have a personal evaluation. The concern really isn't about the quantity of people who are saved. The real concern is whether you, you who are listening to Jesus' words right now, 
in this group of people whether you are saved. Are you sure that when you physically die, you are saved and you will be with Jesus Christ? Because your salvation is not left to speculation. There's a personal message of the kingdom of God that needs to be received by every follower of Jesus Christ. Now let's take a closer look at this question. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Because it's really important to see how this question was written, how this question is phrased. And in looking at the New American Standard Version, the NASB, I think it's more accurate in its translation from the Greek directly. And it reads this, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Now, did you catch that present participle? I know it's been years since English class. But the present participle is there. Being saved. Being saved. Now, there are different stages of being in regards to the questions of salvation. For example, have you been saved? Past, right? From the presence of sin. Or, will you be saved? Future. From the presence of sin. Or, are you being saved, present, from the power of sin? So the emphasis of the question here is in the present. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Now, with the question being phrased this way, Jesus answered it with this verse in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. And remember, he said this to them, not to the person asking the question. This is for all of them. This is for us. Because when someone asks you a question, say, hey, Pastor Albert, will only be a few saved. Only a few will enter through the... You'd be like, what? I asked the question. Tell me. But you're addressing this whole group. That's just not typically how dialogues go, right? It's, I don't know, maybe it's rude. Sorry. But, but this is important for Jesus to address with his disciples. So he's doing that. And every one of us has a last breath that we're going to take on this earth. And Jesus is answering them in the present tense. All of our lives will physically come to an end. And so this is the question. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And it's redirected toward each one of us individually as a very personal and present question. Lord, am I being saved? And it's not easy. Being saved is not easy. Notice what is written in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive. Meaning, to agonize. That's where we get our word agonize from. It's from the Greek. And, and it's from this word. It means to enter a contest. To contend. To fight with adversaries. To struggle with difficulties and dangers. To endeavor with strenuous zeal. That's what we are to do. Strive. Now some of you may be wondering about striving to enter through the narrow door because... This kind of sounds like we determine whether or not we get into heaven or not. That it's based off of what we do. But we who study the Bible know that this type of belief is not biblical. And this isn't what Jesus is saying. 
Paul wrote to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we know we're not saved by our good works. We know that. But we are saved for our good works. Let's read on in Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We know that the foundation of our salvation is built on what Jesus did on the cross. His face was set on Jerusalem. It's not anything that we do. But the proof, the evidence of our salvation is that we strive to enter through the narrow door. We make every effort in our life to show evidence that we are indeed disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. Paul also wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The present is so important, yet it's often overlooked. Think about how we do evangelism. Oftentimes we ask people questions that focus on either the past or the future, but rarely on the present. For example, we use past questions like this. Have you been saved from the penalty of sin? That's, that's, that's a question focused on the past. Or we focus on the future and we ask, will you be saved from the presence of your sin? But how often do we hear the question, are you being saved right now from the power of sin? We rarely talk about the present, yet the present is so important. Now let's take a look at several verses that involve the present participle because I want to show you how important this really is. I'm going to run through these verses. I'm sorry I don't have them referenced. You can write them down as we go. Don't have to turn to them. Just write them down. Or just look up blueletterbible.com and put being saved and all of them will pop up. That's one of my cheating methods. Sorry. Here we go. Acts chapter 2 verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Last one. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 15 through 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Being saved. It's right now. It's in the present. Jesus is telling us, strive to enter through the narrow door right now. Not something in the past, not something that you've done before. Right now. It's by your present striving that is proof that you are indeed saved. Yes, you accepted by faith and accepted God's gracious gift of salvation sometime in your past. But it's in the striving to enter through the narrow door that is evidence that your faith in God is genuine right now. You remember a guy named Judas Iscariot? He was one of Jesus' disciples, wasn't he? 
he didn't enter to strive through the narrow door at that time of his life. In that period of his life, he was not being saved. What does Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 tell us? It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. For those of us who have been in church for any length of time, we've witnessed how many people haven't strived to enter through the narrow door presently, haven't we? Just even in our church. How people weren't being saved. How many people have you personally seen fall away from God? I've seen a ton. People we saw get baptized in our church. People we saw in prayer meetings. People we saw in home groups. People we used to see in church, but they've just fallen away. What happened? I can't say this for all of them, but I could say probably for some of them. They weren't striving to enter through the narrow door. They weren't being saved. They didn't take care of the evil, unbelieving heart that leads to falling away from the living God, as Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 instructs. And you know what? We all have that capacity to turn away from the living God. We have that heart. We have that sin nature in us. Moving on in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 now. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't be fooled by the deceitfulness of sin because it can harden each and every one of us. This is something we have to do every day. It happens so quickly, that deceitfulness. Because you were once saved does not mean you have the license to coast through your relationship with Jesus for the rest of your life. Continuing on in Hebrews. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do you see that there's an effort on our part today? We don't earn salvation. We don't earn it. That is a gracious, generous gift from God. We do put effort into it, though. Our relationship with Jesus isn't effortless. If you have achieved anything worthwhile, isn't effort part of it? Anything? Your career, your health, your education, your relationships, anything. And it's the same with our spiritual relationship with God. How's your study life? How's your prayer life? How are your spiritual disciplines? How's your worship, your fellowship? How's your heart? Are you striving to enter through the narrow door? And just because you have a ticket doesn't mean that you've entered through the door. I was at a sporting event last week where I had a ticket. But what if I didn't go in? It would be meaningless. Right? In order to go through this narrow opening of this door that I went into this arena, I had to put forth a lot of effort. I had to travel there with my own money and my own time. I had to wait in line. I had to go through security checks and metal detectors and looking through bags and crowds of people and work my way to my seat. And it does no good to just have a ticket and do nothing if I want to go in. I have to strive 
if I want to be there. Right? And because the ticket was valuable to me, I put in the effort to get there and to be on time. To get there on time. Because if it was over, what good is that ticket? If the time passed, if the event already happened, what good is that ticket? If we were all passionate about entering the narrow door, would we even have this question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Because think about this. The concern isn't about how many people can fit into heaven. Everyone can. What Jesus is concerned about is how much effort will one put in a timely manner before their time is up, before those doors are shut and the event's done. Namely, death for us. Your physical death. Because time is ticking. right? And if you are outside the narrow door when the time is up, that's it. Event's over. Your time to get in is, is done. You look at the latter part of verse 24 and into 25 of Luke chapter 13 with me. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Do these verses sound familiar to you at all? In terms of a story? Sounds like Noah and the ark to me. Right? For, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. You get the picture of Noah? That's it. Door is shut. Blood waters are rising. You remember that? Noah was a righteous man. He preached righteousness. And the people around him thought he was nuts. Hey, you're nuts, man. What are you doing building this big old boat? There's no water around here. And they all thought he was whack until that, that water wouldn't stop rising and they stood outside Noah's ark and were like, hey, let us in, let us in. It's too late. Door's shut. And they had their chances, but when judgment came, when judgment comes, it's too late. Some of those people probably thought that they'd be allowed in. Come on, Noah. You're my neighbor. Come on, Noah. We know each other. We grew up together. We went to kindergarten Sorry for beating you up. Come on. And you know, all this stuff. And so, this person asked Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And the narrow door Jesus was talking about is this doorway to salvation. That might be debatable to some of you. For most scholars, they believe that it's the doorway to salvation. But I think that's what Luke was writing about here, and that's what Matthew was writing about in his gospel in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Matthew wrote, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now in our present age, culture, society, this type of belief is really hard to accept for some people. Really hard to accept especially in the Bay Area. I realize that. I realize that what I am saying here and what a lot of you believe here, this is not acceptable. Because we live in a pluralistic society that desires to accept everyone's beliefs and everyone's beliefs as equal. We live in a society that values anyone's beliefs to be as true as everyone else's beliefs. That's what we value, generally speaking. Our society, generally speaking, wants tolerance for people's beliefs to be accepted by everyone, and everyone's beliefs are equally as true. 
There is a value judgment from our society that if you refuse to accept someone else's beliefs, then you're intolerant and you are looked down upon. If that's the case, isn't that just as intolerant? And that makes inconsistent logic. See, there are different types of tolerance. For example, social tolerance. People come from so many different backgrounds that we dress, we work, we eat differently. Things within a social framework. Me dressing in a church like this here, I'm fine. Go to Africa. It's social tolerance. And so if, if someone from Africa came here and, and was dressed to the nines and all this stuff, we'd accept them. If I went over there, I, I hope they would accept me socially and tolerate me socially. But they're, 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 they're different, and there's a tolerance to be exercised there. Reasonable people accept that. Social tolerances. Right? You dress differently than A. We just dress different. We eat different things. That's, that's fine. Then there's like a legal tolerance. Not illegal. A legal tolerance. Where in our form of government, we have processes, right? That we can make amendments to laws. So there's some tolerance to that because you can amend things. And, and, and judges have a range to their sentencing, right? They don't have to give you the max sentence. If you are a first-time offender and it was by accident or whatever, there's a more lenient uh, sentence than if you're a repeat offender and you keep doing it purposefully and you premeditate it, and it's different. So there's a legal tolerance but when it comes to the intellect, intellectual tolerance is different. Not every reason is equally as true as the next. Every road does not lead to heaven. Actually, it does. I'll get into that a little later. But when you go to the doctor, and she tells you that you need heart surgery in order to save your life, she doesn't tell you just to show up to the hospital, get anesthetized, and, and then take your tonsils out. She doesn't do that, right? There's no room for intellectual tolerance there. You need heart surgery, not to get your tonsils out. Everyone knows that that won't work. In the game of basketball, which is the game of Oakland, by the way, there's no sport bigger than basketball here. If you want to know the universal language of Oakland, learn how to shoot a basketball. Points are only scored if they go through the hoop. They aren't scored if they hit the rim. They aren't scored if they hit the backboard. Only through the hoop. It has to go through. There are no points any other way. It has to go through. Everyone understands that. You either score or you miss. Intellectually, you see that. There's no fraction of a point. There's no intellectual tolerance there. Last week, my family and I went on vacation. We went to Las Vegas so that I could attend this mixed martial arts event. That's, that's where we were. That's the sporting event that I was talking about earlier. Now, please be tolerant. That's a social tolerance for me to go to Las Vegas and watch your sporting event. That's social. Social, not intellectual. But those guys don't score points like punching in the air. I win! I win! I win! I win! Like, come on! You lose! You loser. And, and you know what else? How did we get there? We flew. Yes, our family's part bird. We all flew. No. Um, we got on a plane, right? We board the plane. The plane is airborne. And then the pilot says, Hey, guys, um, um, from the cockpit here, it's the captain, and, and we're pretty close to Las Vegas, and, and we're going to land somewhere in the desert. 
Not sure where, not sure when, just sit tight and relax. No. I mean, how comforting is that? That's, that's not what I signed up for. That's not what I paid for. When you buy an airplane ticket, you expect to land on a runway. That's what you expect. At the place that you bought a destination for, on the airline that you bought a ticket for. That's what you expect. You purchase a ticket on a specific airline that takes you to a specific destination at a specific time, and it departs and it arrives on these set predetermined times. And I know there are emergencies, and I know that let's not get into all that stuff, but you get the gist. Isn't there comfort knowing where you are going, how you are getting there, and when everything is going to happen? That's what the Bible has done. That's what Jesus has done. And so when you say, oh, no, that road doesn't lead to heaven, you're not getting on the plane. Oh, no, when I die, every, everything's good. Everyone goes, wrong timing. You missed your flight. Do you see the comfort and reassurance we're given through Jesus, through the Bible? We know where we're going. We, are, we know where we're, where we're heading. We're, we know who we're going to be with. And it's through Jesus and that we are with God. There's no other way that you're going to be led there. And you're led there when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's the flight itinerary. If you don't like it, you don't go. And I've heard many people have told me, all roads lead to heaven. I actually believe that. I agree with that. Because everyone will face the judgment of God. Because isn't that what heaven is? Being in the presence of God. Every road leads to heaven. Every road will lead to God. It's whether God will judge you guilty or not. We're all going to be there though. Right? You will be face to face with God. And to be in the presence of God is heaven, essentially. But the difference is whether heaven is going to be your final destination or it's just a transfer point and you are going somewhere else. Will you stay in heaven temporarily? Or is that your final destination? Because we all will face God. But will Jesus be your advocate or not? Will Jesus say, he's, he's with me. I know him. This, this one's with me. I don't know that one. Different destination. Will heaven being in the presence of God be your final destination everlasting? Or will it be hell? absent the presence of God everlasting. Jesus has provided the right surgery to save your life. He has told us how to victoriously score in our life. He has instructed us about where we are going, how we're going to get there, when it will happen. But people can't accept that even though they know it to be true in medicine, sports, travel, all aspects of their life. Why? A prideful heart, full of sin. Verses 26 and 27. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. This is like being invited to a wedding reception and once you get there, you can't find out your place. You don't know where your seat is. This actually happened to me several weeks ago. I was attending my cousin's wedding in San Diego. So I I bought an airplane ticket, and I arranged for my travel. I went to the wedding. I spent a lot of money doing this stuff. 
Right? And, and when I got to the reception later that evening, my name is nowhere to be found on the guest list. I'm your cousin. You're not on the guest list. We don't have a seat for you. Fortunately, my dad didn't show up. I just took his seat. But how many of us assume that our name is at the wedding feast in heaven when it's really not? How many of us assume that? How many of us think we're definitely in? I thought I was in at my cousin's wedding. I, I, def- I sent him the thing. He, he knows we're related. We've been with each other over 30 some odd years. I'm his cousin for goodness sake. Of course my name is on there. Of course I have a place at the table. This is what the Jews thought. This is what the Jews thought. They thought, I'm a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm in. Of course I'm in. I'm the direct lineage. Of course I'm in. And some of us Christians think like this too. I go to church. I go to a Bible-believing church. And I listen to sermons and I do Christian things. Of course I'm in. I think some people are going to be surprised. I think some people are going to be really surprised. I think some people are going to be so surprised to find out that they don't have a place at the wedding feast. There is no gray area here. You're either in or you're out. No one else can get you in. You aren't born into it. You cannot inherit a place in heaven. It's between you and God. No one else. And this is what will happen when this reality hits people. And specifically the Jews were addressed by Jesus here. In verses 28 through 30. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. How deeply sad is this? What a tragedy. What a disappointment. You read those descriptions of of frustration and anger, weeping and gnashing of teeth? How tragic is that? Expression and description of defeat and hopelessness. Right, The heroes of your faith are all there, but you can't enter. So how about you? You see your parents there or your grandparents or people in your life who have tried to influence your life in the ways of Jesus, and they're there. But you're not. People from all over the world with God and it had nothing to do with how rich they were or how powerful they were and and all the things that our world values, that doesn't seem to matter in the kingdom of God. The last are first, the first are last. It doesn't matter. There are people outside the church right now and the difference between them being in here and out there is that they haven't entered. One of the most effective tools that the devil uses is that We have time. He uses time. There are many people fooled into believing that they have time to regenerate, to transform their lives from faithfully accepting the gospel and the salvation of Jesus. Your time is limited. I'm out of time. So let me close again with verses 24 and 25. For many, I tell you, will see to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. All of our physical lives are limited by time. There's a countdown from the day we are born to when we die. 
It's a finite period of time, and I plead with you to strive within your time frame to enter that narrow door. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your stern warning, which is truth, because you love us so much. You desire for us to strive through the narrow door in our definite period of time. I pray, Lord, that whoever does not have a relationship with you here this morning, that your spirit has touched their heart and that they would accept you in faith to be their Lord and Savior, Jesus. I pray that those who have lived in the past, that they were once saved or they have been saved, that they would also be saved or that they would be being saved. Help them, God. In Jesus' name, amen.